It's Thursday, February 24th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Verdes, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. A good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest development in policy and politics in the Golden State. Um, Last evening, Russian President Vladimir Putin launched an invasion on Ukraine. Um, Meanwhile, the Germans have halted certification of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, and there's already been pent-up demand for fuel As America and the world are recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been speculated that oil prices will soar over $100 per barrel. And in California, it could soar over $5 per gallon. Um, General, what can uh, the California government do to mollify uh, this shock at the pump? Uh, Will California Governor Newsom and the legislature modify California's renewable portfolio standard to allow for the use of more fossil fuels? Uh, Will they offer some tax relief? by issuing a gas tax holiday or freeze on gas tax increases or all of the above. Um, Lee, let's let's start with you on this one. Well, Jonathan, it's, it's a challenging time in California really for cost of living issues. Um, inflation is up year over year, seven and a half percent within a state that has, you know, for all intents and purposes, the highest cost of living within the country. You might say Hawaii has a higher cost of living, but you know Hawaii is a one-off for, for many, many reasons. Uh, we have we have about 14 million Californians um, who are sufficiently poor who qualify for California's Medi-Cal program. So when we say that Californians are really, really stressed in terms of the budget, um, <laughs> you know, they really, really are. So um, so one of the things that really hits Lower income households, middle income households are energy costs. California already has, I believe, the highest gas taxes in the country at 51 cents a gallon. Bill, Bill, I don't know what prices are like right now in the Silicon Valley area, but uh, where I live in the Santa Barbara area, it's really hard to find anything under $5 a gallon. So, Jonathan, when you mentioned $5 a gallon, yeah, in, 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 in where I live, it's, it's at that level already. Mm-hmm. The price of oil on the world market right now, depending on the quality and details like that, is between $92 and $98 per barrel, up from $65 um, just last December. So just you know, less, than, less than three months ago. Um, so we have this challenge. This is a challenge that um, really resonates with voters. I mean, when you talk to voters, uh, what do they care about? Energy costs and gasoline costs are right up there. Californians drive a lot. Um, so there is there is the automatic increase in, um, in the gas tax that's coming this year. Newsom has spoke about putting that on a holiday. He's talked about that within the context of his uh, of his budget that um, that that will have to be negotiated between now and the start of the next uh, the next fiscal year. 
But, you know, this really highlights the, the schizophrenia of California energy policy. Um, Governor Newsom and some legislators in the state have been incredibly proud to call themselves as we are at the forefront of climate change. And we're doing the Lord's work. And my goodness, isn't this wonderful, all of the regulations and new taxes that we were putting in to make sure that the carbon footprint of California doesn't get any bigger. Well, we all know that California's contribution to the world global carbon footprint is, is literally nothing. It's less than 1% of the, of the world's global, of the global carbon footprint. Um, but yet by putting in all of the taxes and regulations um, that are trying to push consumers away from fossil fuels into electric cars and so forth, green energy, uh, what that really does is it really punishes the lowest income households, the middle income households, it rewards, um, uh, it rewards the deepest pocket elite Democrats that support Governor Newsom and legislators who say, yeah, you go, Gavin, you go, legislators. We're all for green energy. We're all for the Green New Deal. We can afford that. We have, we have five Teslas in the, we have five Teslas parked in the driveway and we have a hybrid Ferrari. But right. meanwhile, people are, those people, those 13 or 14 million people who are on Medi-Cal, why don't you tell that to them as they struggle to try to figure out how to pay for gas and who are going to struggle even more um, with the increase in, uh, in the state's gas, gas tax if that comes to be. Right. So Lee mentioned the 51 cent uh, per gallon gas tax in California. There's a group in Irvine called uh, Stillwater Associates, or researchers. And uh, last year, they broke down uh, how much Californians pay in tax and fees for a gallon of gas. And here's what they found, Lee and Jonathan. Uh, if the average price of gasoline right now is $4.75 or so, almost exactly one fourth of that cost comes from taxes and fees. And it breaks down as follows. Uh, the gasoline tax, formerly the state excise tax, as Lee mentioned, that's 51 cents per gallon. It gets adjusted per year. Uh, for inflation. So it's going to go up another nickel or so unless it's stopped as Newsom wants to. The sales tax is about 10 cents per gallon. Then you add on fees. And this is a uh, significant thing to point out because fees in the legislature do not require super majorities to pass, just a simple majority. So you can always slap on fees quite easily. In California, there is what's called a low carbon gas programs fee. That's 22 cents per gallon. There's a greenhouse gas programs fee, which is 15 cents per gallon. And then finally, an underground tank storage fee of two cents a gallon. So add that up and that's a buck 18. And that is a big reason why when people come to California and they first look at a gasoline station and they see that four on the left instead of a three and a two, their eyes bug out. So the question is what comes next? As Lee mentioned, um, Governor Newsom's budget proposal uh, includes this uh, freeze on increasing the gas tax. Uh, he estimates it'll save about $523 million Um for taxpayers, but sometimes the governor proposes, sometimes the legislature disposes. And if this uh, vote were to come up tomorrow, I think the legislature would probably say no to what the governor wants to do. Uh, and I'll get Lee's thoughts on this for a minute. If you take away this $523 million, that is means they have to find the money elsewhere if they want to. There's a very simple solution. The state of California is looking at a $47.57 billion surplus. Now that may change a bunch, Lee, given what's going on in the market as we speak. Uh, Vladimir Putin 
Putin really kind of causing a lot of misery there. But anyway, there will easily be $523 million to make up in revenue if they want to take it, uh, if they want to move it that way. But here's the problem, gentlemen. You get that revenue, you want to put it into new spending and new programs. You don't want to make up for what you're already expecting. So here we're going to have a tug of war between uh, the governor and the Democratic leadership in the uh, in legislature. But Lee, what caught my eye here, and I get your thoughts on this, um, Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon was asked about the governor's proposal, and then he said, no, he doesn't like this. And when pressed, he said, why? Because it's bad for the economy. It'll cost jobs. So kind of kind of interesting uh, use of logic there. Higher taxes mean more jobs, better for the economy. Yeah, you know, I, I, I saw that also, Bill. Um, that that begs the question. Hey, let's let's raise taxes a lot more. Right. Uh, uh, according to the speaker's logic, that'll increase jobs. Um, so, Bill, it's it's an inter- interesting political times because, as you note, um, the legislature is uh, is just revenue hungry. It's 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 Leviathan. It, you know, it's. It's, it's got a big mouth and it wants to be fed and it wants to be fed more every year. And California is now bringing in big surpluses, um, you know, largely because of, uh, of those top one tenth of one percenters who are paying just enormous taxes, a lot of it based on capital gains. And now we've got the Ukrainian situation Um which is awful on many, many fronts. Um, but a side effect of what's going on in the Ukraine is that, as you know, to Bill, um, markets are starting to plunge. Um, and we had been in a bull market, depending on how you want to date it, anywhere from 10, you know, anywhere from eight to 10 years um, that, that we've been having just enormous rises in stock prices. And these are big, big rises in stock prices and in the valuation of other types of, uh, of, of equity, private equity, for example, um, is generating the surplus. Um, I received an email from a fellow um, earlier this week, um, really interesting guy. He had just sold uh, his business that he had built from the ground up back, you know, starting in the 80s, he's going to retire into a $150 million business. And he was saying, hey, you know what? I just I just paid a $20 billion tax bill. Um, and he said, you know what? I don't feel all that bad about it because you know I live in California. Um, I feel very tied to the state. Uh, but he said, you know what? If they could just use it in a productive, in a productive manner, if I could just see the investment contributions or the benefits of this being spread out to a large number of people, he said, you know, I think I would feel pretty good about that. But um, but he said, I don't, I don't see that. Yeah. Um, so we have this tension between the governor and the legislator. And Bill, when, um, you know this stuff much better than I do, when does the GAN limit, um, when does the GAN limit kick in? Uh, it kicks in at a certain percentage above what the uh, surplus is over the budget. So uh, they're already at the GAN limit right now. But here's the problem with the GAN limit, Lee. You take the money. You First of all, you get into a lot of kabuki over what exactly, how much revenue is uh, free over the GAN limit. Uh, but then when you start kind of sending it back to, to voters and California taxpayers, Lee, you forget we're in a big state of 40 million people, a lot of taxpayers. You don't get a lot in return. 
uh, and, and tends to filter down. Uh, I complain about this constantly. I never see a dime of this stuff. <laughs> I don't know if you guys do either. Uh, it just doesn't affect someone. It, not that I'm wealthy or anything, but I just it, it affects it hits you. It hits you at a much lower you know lower rate. So it doesn't really appeal. And this gets back to why the governor is uh, is talking about what he's doing on taxes. He's running for reelection, and I think a lot of lawmakers going to start looking at this too if the economy continues to sputter here in California and inflation continues to to wreak havoc. Um, it's it's you know it's a challenge as to how the economy hits you. You obviously feel it in terms of food prices, but boy, when you go to the gas station, Lee, and suddenly it's you know you you, know, you have a fifteen gallon gas tank and it's five dollars a gallon. That's seventy five bucks, and that's a pretty good bite out of people's monthly income. Doing if you have to do that, say every other week or so, it's one of the post COVID economic realities of California. When we're all locked down or working from home or sitting on Zoom calls like this, you don't drive your car as much, so maybe you don't realize what a how awful the fill up is. But now California's experienced that. But again, we'll see what the reality is in Sacramento. The governor wants to do this. The governor has an advantage in the legislative process because he does have a line on a veto. He has a better, he has a bigger bully pulpit. Legislature does. We'll just see if the speaker and, and uh, the Senate leadership is going to dig in his heels or not. My my feeling is they'll probably cave to Newsom at the end of the day. But right now, they just seem really reluctantly in Jonathan, I think, simply because they don't want to say goodbye to half a billion dollars. Yeah, those, you know, there's... Um the amount of revenue we're talking about half a billion dollars, which, um, which is something with, but it's not, it's relatively small within that 40, what 45, $47 billion surplus. Um, not hard, not hard to make up. Right. And at the same time, um, what goes into the inflation statistics um, excludes things like, the increase in home prices that continues to just send California housing prices really beyond the reach of almost um, of almost everyone um, in San Francisco now the price per square foot of San Francisco housing is now over a thousand dollars per square foot so that means a thousand dollar a thousand dollar, I'm sorry, a thousand, a thousand square foot condominium, which that's probably one bedroom territory is now a million dollars. The median home price in Los Angeles is now approaching a million dollars. And of course, LA is a very, very large area, um, geographically very diverse, including a lot of low income areas. So when we talk about a million dollar median home price in Los Angeles, um, you look at anywhere in what's known as the West Side, Beverly Hills, Hollywood, uh, right. Westwood, Santa Monica, and so forth. Um, those medians are getting closer up, getting in the neighborhood of two million right. if one is looking at um, single family homes. Um, San Diego, which is a sprawling area, uh, enormous, you know, lots of geography, lots of land out there. Um, San Diego, the median home price is now eight hundred fifty thousand right. dollars. So, the uh, you know, as you know, we're we're talking about California here, but if we think about the direct, we think about the direct connection with national issues, um, and I can't help but think that um, the Democratic Party really is losing traction nationally. Um, Biden's approval rating. Uh, in some polls, is below 40%, um, is below Trump's uh, at the same time of his presidency. And just imagine what Biden's would be if he spoke, if he, if he had the, the lack of civility that, that Trump had. Um, so when I think about national issues, I think about California, um, you know, Newsom has got to be thinking, hey, we're, hey, Biden may not be running, um, 
Harris, uh, Harris's approval ratings are absolutely awful. He might think that he's the golden boy. Um, and he may be, th- he, 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 I think we both think that he has his eyes set on, uh, set on bigger sites than just California. Um, so if he gets his way on this bill, I think he's going to be feeling really good about himself and he's going to be looking um, in uh, 2024 for the national spotlight. So two thoughts and we can move on to the next topic. One is, Lee, you just described uh, a paradox of California living in that uh, if you can afford to live in San Francisco with that $1,000 a square foot price that you mentioned, uh, okay, maybe gasoline is not a problem because maybe you can take public transportation if you work downtown in the financial district. So good. Maybe you're not worrying about filling up. But conversely, if you want to find a home you can afford in Los Angeles County, you're moving out toward maybe the Valley, Valencia or something like that and looking at a long painful commute if you want to go anywhere near downtown LA. Now gas is quite relevant. So there you go. You got, you know, it's kind of, you know, you're kind of trapped in that regard. Um, but as, as for gasoline and what's going on in Ukraine and the bigger energy picture, uh, what's strikes me is just how in California, there's an opening here to talk about just what we're doing with statewide energy. Uh, We want to be very reliant upon renewables. We will not frack. We're shutting down our nuclear plant. Um, You know, there has to be a conversation about fracking. There has to be a conversation about fossil because we're just not going to give it up overnight. Um, But it just doesn't seem to be a conversation that's going to happen here, maybe because we're just a big blue fortress or not. But it just seems that we're missing a chance to, to, you know, have a conversation about really how vulnerable we are on the energy grid. Absolutely. Absolutely. We use lots. We still use lots and lots of fossil fuel. We still have nutty policies in which, um, I mean, now virtually every public utility, and again, this is really going to hit home to lower income and and middle income households. Energy is now being priced based on the lack of efficiency within renewables. So during the daytime when it's sunny uh, or when the wind is blowing, California can make a lot of energy. Um, at nighttime or when the wind is not blowing, California can't store that energy. There's not currently a feasible large-scale storage solution for renewables from solar or wind. So what's happening now is that utilities are pricing electricity much, much higher um, from 5 to 9 p.m., which is the time that families get home from working the two jobs and again, trying to pay the energy bill, trying to pay the food bill, trying to pay the rent bill, um, you know, trying to help kids with homework. And, um, and again, this is the consequence of an energy portfolio that's really, really been driven more by policy preferences of a small group of people really than, um, than in terms of economics. You know, I usually, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, let me just apologize to, to to the French before I say this, but I usually don't think of France as being ahead of the curve in terms of the most sensible economic policies. But if you look at France, and for the last four decades, they have generated about eighty percent of their electricity from nuclear sources. Mm-hmm. Nuclear power today is um, is just, from what I understand from people who work in that area, just so much remarkably more safe than it was back in the day. Right. And uh, and as you noted, um, that's an area we're not even willing to discuss or consider. And I haven't met anyone who works in the energy arena who agrees with that vision that nuclear should not be part of the conversation. So again, um, this really reflects, I think, more political preferences, social preferences of those who really, really support the Democratic Party. It's not realistic in terms of economics, and it doesn't respect the pocketbooks of, you know, what you might call the rank and file Californians. 
Yeah, and it's also a reminder, Lee, uh, and we will get next subject here, uh, of just kind of sometimes how utopian public policy can be. Uh, the governor wants to move us to renewables. He wants to get off the fossil habit. There's a school of thought that the surest way to kick people off the fossil fuel habit is to make it so expensive they can't afford it. And so they will shift. It's the same reason why you, you, know, you put a huge tax on cigarettes, for example, just make it prohibitively expensive. But what you notice, it gets toward $5. The governor, the governor caves because why? Now there's a political uh, you know, liability. So so anyway, so there you are. So, well, you know, stay tuned and we'll see what happens this summer in the legislature. We'll see who blinks first on this yeah. one. Lee, let's talk about your uh, California on your mind column this week. You write about how San Franciscans voted to recall three members of their school board in a landslide, uh, ousting Allison Collin with 79% of the vote, uh, Gabriela Lopez, the uh, board's president, with 75% of the vote, and Faga Moliga, the board's vice president, with 72% of the vote. Uh, Lee, you write, quote, San Francisco voters had to learn this the hard way. They picked school members with highly idiosyncratic and personal agendas that had little, if anything, to do with providing San Francisco kids with a quality education, unquote. Uh, Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, the school board failed to provide a timeline for the reopening of schools, prompting the mayor, London Breed, to make the unprecedented decision to sue the sue the school board. Uh, last fall, uh, San Francisco schools became the last of the Bay Area schools to fully reopen. Uh, Bill and Lee, uh, number one, is Mayor Breed capable of replacing these members with less extreme people? And number two, will these events cause the politics of the city and the state at large to at least moderate some? Uh, Jonathan, it's, I'll be interested in hearing Bill's thoughts um, about what this means going forward for San Francisco and the Bay Area, which, um, which is uh, people, a lot of San Francisco voters, a lot of voters in the Bay Area, including Berkeley and so forth, politically extremely liberal. Um, they would probably say they're progressives. Um, they would probably say, yes, I, I am an active anti-racist and pro-green energy. And you know, you would go down the list what defines a progressive or someone that's extremely liberal politically. Um, but you know, it's funny, there's, um, there's an old saying in Spain. Um, this is from one of my former PhD students who who, who grew up just outside of Madrid. Um, and he said, you know, in Spain, we have this, we have this old saying that goes something like, anyone who has a daughter becomes conservative when they become the age of 16. And so what that means to me for today is anyone who has a child in San Francisco public schooling, you know, suddenly becomes a non-progressive, at least as far as it goes with, the, with respect to schools because San Francisco school performance, um, with the exception of one or two schools, uh, certainly at the high school level, such as Lowell School, um, is very, very low performing. Um, Hispanic kids, uh, black kids, their competency in science and math particularly, only about 15% um, are judged to be uh, at grade performance or above. which is at some level just very, very sad because if kids aren't getting science and math, um, then they're not gonna be competitive for all the jobs that we call good jobs today, STEM jobs, computer programming, software engineering, um, you know, being an architect even. Uh, there's just a lot of jobs that won't be within their level of competency. And this is really about the schools not doing their jobs. So, you know, if you ask, you know, kind of what happened, because these very same very liberal voters voted in Collins and um, and these other folks. And by the way, the um, 
there were only three, uh, I think it's a seven person board. I think there were only three who were eligible for recall. All three were recalled. Right. And by about a three to one margin. So we've gone from a situation where these people were overwhelmingly voted in because they were progressives. And now they're overwhelmingly voted out because they're progressives. And what that really, I think, highlights when you mentioned that San Franciscans had to learn the hard way. Yeah, the hard way was they failed in their jobs. They didn't reopen schools. Even though lots of schools in the Bay Area were reopening, SF schools remained closed. They weren't they were they weren't fully reopened until just this past fall. Who was really losing out on this? Well, you know, it wasn't kids from wealthy white families who had tutors and who had Khan Academy, who had all sorts of alternative ways to learn. The losers were the kids in very poor households that didn't have a working computer, didn't have reliable internet, who were latchkey, latchkey kids. Um, so it was, it was ironic that you know, the most anti-racist school board in the country was just completely abandoning the people who they promised to support. And the, um, and the president of the school board, what did she announce when the recall took place? Well, you know, sadly, I wish she had recognized, hey, we made some mistakes and um, we should have done some things differently. She said very predictably, oh, this is all about white supremacy. Well, no, it wasn't. This was Asian American voters really being upset because they were called effectively white supremacists by uh, Allison Collins, the, the person who was recalled with the largest vote at 78%. Uh, she had tweeted out that Asian American kids come from families who, who play the white supremacy game in order to get ahead. And now this is supposed to be the people who are, who are looking out for children's learning. They didn't get schools open. And in fact, when London Breed filed a lawsuit, what they found out is that there was no plan at all. Nothing had been done about what's required to get, to get our schools reopened again. Um, what the school board was spending time with was um, renaming schools. So what became most important to them was, you know, effectively their priority was, you know, we're anti-racist and schools named after George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson, they must be renamed. These people no longer, these people are a scourge on our history and they no longer can be represented in the San Francisco school district. We have to choose new names for the Lincoln School and the Washington School and the Jefferson School. It didn't stop there. They wanted to choose a new name for Diane Feinstein Elementary School. They wanted to change the name of the Argonne Elementary School. Argonne is the name of a forest in France where a World War I battle was fought and some San Franciscans soldiers who happened to be from that particular neighborhood uh, distinguished themselves in service. Now, why we should be worrying about the name of a forest that a school's named after and not reopening schools, that's what really got to people. Um, yep. So we go back to the idea of, hey, what do people want? Well, you hire a plumber to come out and, 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 fix the, and fix the leak. You hire a roofer to come out and put a new roof on. You hire a school district board to 
educate your kids. Um, they miserably failed at this. And in the meantime, so many kids left the school district, they're now facing $125 million deficit. So this was just abject failure. Breed is gonna be in the position of appointing new people. Um, and it's, you know, what I find interesting, Bill, about London Breed is that she was elected to be mayor of San Francisco. She is a, she is a liberal. But I think she's saying as she spends more time in her job that what San Franciscans thought they wanted is not really what they want. Um, and so we'll see who they we'll see who she replaces them with, whether they're going to be more pragmatic, sensible people who really have their eye on the ball um, or not. Yeah. Allow, allow me now to play the role of the uh, serious cynic here when it comes to all things San Francisco. Uh to understand San Francisco, San Francisco is first of all, understand this is a city that has more dogs in it than it has children. Um, and that's in part because uh, uh, couples have children. They raise them in the city for a few years. So when it comes time for school, they look for other parts of the Bay Area. They come down the peninsula toward Pier Palo Alto. They go across the Bay to um, the uh, Oakland Hills. Better school systems, in short. If you stay in San Francisco and raise your kids there, you and you cannot afford a private school, then Lowell High School is kind of your sanctuary because it's the best high school in San Francisco, and it's based on merit-based admission. Um, when the Supes wanted to change that to um, to a lottery for admission, um, they stirred up a hornet's nest, uh, in part Asian voters, as Lee mentioned, but other parents as well. In other words, everybody who had a stake in the game. Combine that with the lunacy on renaming uh, the schools, and I think general COVID fatigue in San Francisco, but then other quality of life issues, most spectacularly crime, and that was kind of the perfect storm the witches brew for running these uh, people out on a rail. Now, the mayor, of course, I think she wet her finger, and I think she saw this coming, so she jumped on the bandwagon. The cynic tell for me is where she goes from here. As Lee mentioned, who does she replace? These are temporary replacements because uh, there's an election coming up in November. Who does she put in as temporary replacements? Does she put in kind of the status quo? Or does she go for more firebrands who are going to kind of, you know, stir up trouble, if you will? Good trouble, I think, in that regard. But then let's move that beyond uh, education. Uh, she has to look at the condition of her city. What is she doing on homelessness? Is she, she going to have a come to Jesus moment realizing that San Francisco's homeless policies are basically failing? Does she want to do a 180 on those? Uh, what about the recall election this uh, summer with Chesa Boudin, the, uh, the uh, city county DA? Will she support the recall of him? Uh, so that's a that's a test where not she's changed. Uh, and then moving beyond that, what about needle exchange, for example, which gets back to the homeless problem and the fun of the crime issue itself. You know, she first kind of came out as this more, you know, I'm tired of the silliness, uh, tough mayor when you had the uh, crime wave in Union Square over the holidays. But I think she was kind of pushed into a corner and had to be that person, Leah Jonathan, just as I think she was pushed into a corner and had to be that person on these on the uh, Ed Board recall as well. So the proof is the pudding. We'll see if she's reformed. But this is a way to transition into the other recall question in California, closer to where Lee is, and that is the uncertain future of one George Cascone, who is the current uh, district attorney of Los Angeles County. Uh, on, Mr., uh, on Tuesday, Mr. Cascone was given a very serious rebuke, the Association of Deputy District Attorneys. Uh, this is a collective bargaining group for about 800 deputy DAs in Los Angeles County. What a, what a monstrous operation that is, 800 deputy DAs, my gosh. Uh, anyway, they voted to support uh, the recall of um, Cascone. Uh, there's currently a, a signature gathering phase. They have to collect 566,000 signatures uh, between now and July the 6th to force the recall vote. Uh, anyway, they voted not only to support the recall, 
They uh, surveyed 83% of these uh, ADDA members and 97.9% of them voted in favor of the recall. So basically nine out of 10 deputy DAs in Los Angeles County do not want to work with Mr. Gascon. Um, I think if he had any honor at this point, he would probably step down realizing that he's in a job that he just can't do it. But again, here's going to be the question we see with California voters, Lee and Jonathan. Will they will they indeed pull the trigger on the recall? And then the second question, Lee, if we're going for larger uh criminal justice reform in California. Uh, the big target sitting out there is Proposition 47, as we've talked about on previous podcasts. This is the initiative that raised the threshold for felony theft uh, from 400 bucks to $950. It's tied into a lot of people's theories as to why smash and grabs have become rampant in California. Uh, Berkeley IGS, which uh, does polling on California, they went in the field and they asked voters about uh, changing Prop 47. Uh, they found overwhelming support to change it, including 64% of moderates, which in California is where elections are won or lost. So there is um, enthusiasm in the grassroots to change this law. We'll see if the legislature touches it, Lee and Jonathan, and we'll see if this anger does indeed manifest into recall of Gascon and as well a recall of uh, Chesa Boudin as all. And again, the question in Los Angeles, will the political elites get behind that recall? If these things happen, then I'll become less cynical and think there's kind of the political establishment gets it. But until then, count me as a cynic when it comes to London Breed and others kind of being sort of born again, tough people on crime and education. Yeah, Bill, Bill, I hear hear you completely. Um, Because we've seen this so often, we've seen this for year after year, really decade after decade. And, you know, you sit there and think, what more do they need to see to understand that their policies really have to change substantially? And the issue with Gascon, um, you know, living, you know, I I work at UCLA as well as Hoover, UCLA being in West Los Angeles. um, And there's a certain tone deafness. (laughs) I mean, if you look at the idea that 98% of the people he supervises want him to be gone. And the deputy DA has started a political action committee to collect to collect funding to support their recall effort. Something's just not right in Camelot. Um, and there's a there's a tone deafness to him that he is just not getting it. Um, just a couple of months ago, uh, in, in December, he gave an interview, he held a press conference um, because he's only been in office. He really has only been in office just a little over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talked about all just the wonderful work he's done about having more lenient sentences, um, that the LA County is safer today than it was when he when he was elected. And um, he, he was asked by reporters, is LA safe? And he said, overall, it is. And you wonder, how can a person say this when crime rates are up 30, 40%? Violent crime is wildly up. Um, um, I mean, coming from UCLA, one of our our graduate students, she was working in political science, um, getting a graduate degree. And as a part-time job, she worked... At, a, at an antique store um, uh, near Hancock Park, which is very high income area. Um, and she was in there by herself and a homeless person came in and stabbed her to death. Right. Um, so it just, it, he has such a tenure for saying things like, yes, LA overall is safe. It's not, no one besides Gascon is claiming LA is safe. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the you know so there is there just is something very very wrong with what's going on in the DA's office, and you know I don't know I would think that the mayor I would think our study would say to him, you know ninety seven point nine percent of of your ranking file prosecutors don't want to work you with anymore, right. you know you either got you either got to make some changes and get them on board or you really should resign. So. Um, yeah. So what might do him in is uh, a woman named Hannah Tubbs. Uh, and let me just quickly give you the story of Hannah Tubbs. So this is a, a 26-year-old woman uh, who is, she's a transgender woman, I should add. That's an important part of the story, who was charged with sexually assaulting a child in a restaurant, of a Denny's restaurant. Uh, Gascon insisted it was right to, uh, right to allow her, she's 26-year-old, uh, he insisted it was right to allow her to plead guilty in juvenile court. Even though she's 26 year old, because she was 17 at the time of the attack, because she did so, she pled guilty in the juvie court. Uh, her sentence was two years behind bars. Um, then suddenly last weekend, Gascon had a, a change of heart on this, and he sent out an email statement in which he said his approach was incorrect. And he said, quote, the complex issues and facts of her particular case were unusual, and I should have treated them that way. Um, this was not, again, a come to Jesus moment. He did this because Fox News was about to publish a story saying that uh, when this woman was in jail, she was basically mocking the light sentence. And so it just was just an affront to him. So this kind of added fuel to the fire. So, uh, but by the way, um, with Gascon, uh, important footnote, he is the co-author of Proposition 47, and he is a former DA from San Francisco. Uh, there's a very cautionary tale to California voters. You get a very thick um, piece of uh, mail every election. It's your voter guide. You got to read it, folks, and kind of find out more about the people you're voting for, because if you've taken a long, hard look at George Cascode on Los Angeles County, you might have come to a one word conclusion, which is yikes. But voters sometimes just overlook these things. And so there you are with Gascone. So, again, we'll see. July 6th is the deadline for collecting the signatures then. And, you know, Lee, if this is indeed kind of a forest fire, a brush fire, to use a very unfortunate California metaphor, we'll see if this thing continues through July. Yeah, yeah, Bill. And when you mentioned that Fox News story, Apparently, they they uh, obtained <clears throat> emails uh, right. from right. the DA office, and and you kind of know who leaked those emails. That was part of that ninety seven point nine percent. They leaked emails saying that Gascon knew about um, about Hannah Tubbs, what she had said about mocking her very light sentence. Uh, Gascon said he had no idea about this. Emails shows shows something else, and uh, and Bill, when you when, when you indicate, you know who's supporting these people, because um, Gascon had been had been from San Francisco, he had an established track record. It brings me back to um, to Chase and Boudin's election, uh, the current uh, San Francisco DA who is gonna, who, who who will face a recall election in June, uh, and you mentioned you know what's London Breed going to say about this? Well, when he was elected, Breed was supporting um, his adversary, is the other candidate, uh, another Democrat. Um, and what I recall from uh, from Boudin's uh, election is that he really had very little support from big name politicians inside California. I remember Bernie Sanders was one of Boudin's major supporters all the way from Vermont. Um, so yeah, you know, it's... Uh, Californians, in my opinion, San Franciscans and Los Angelinos made bad choices here. Um, you sort of ask, well, you know, what didn't you know about these people? And I think it was all there for the knowing at the time of the initial election. And these people, you know, these people have been in office one, 
little over a year in Gascon's case, um, you know, maybe about two years in the case of, uh, of Boudin. And um, yeah, you have to kind of think, you would like to think that voters should be asking themselves, you know, I, you know, we're recalling the people we voted in just a little while ago. Maybe we should, maybe we should pay more attention to this. Right. Uh, Bill, let's talk about uh, your California on your mind column, uh, the, the topic of your California on, on your mind column, which will be out tomorrow. Um, at the end of March, uh, California's pandemic state of emergency will expire. Uh, since March 2020, Newsom, Governor Newsom has twice extended this uh, emergency. Uh, the advantage of keeping the state of emergency is that it, it plays on the safe side. Um, on the negative side, uh, the nation is fatigued by the pandemic and are seeming to say that you know, it's just time to move on. Um, looking at it from a more, from the cynics perspective, would Newsom be willing to rel relinquish the enormous political authority he amassed during the pandemic, especially um, especially that power, especially that he was given the power to amend state voting laws or acquired that power to amend state voting laws right. that benefited Democrats and doling out government contracts that benefit uh, big donors. Um, what's good politics for the governor, Bill? Um, the good politics would be to give this up at the end of March. Um, you figure it this way. Uh, last week, he and uh, California's health secretary uh, did a public event in Fontana, I believe, Lee and Jonathan. And they didn't say the COVID was order over, but they sort of subtly suggested without using the word that we've gone from pandemic to endemic. In other words, COVID is going to be with us, but we just have to learn to deal with it. But we got to kind of get back to normal, if you will, without using the E word. Um, but here's the challenge. And the challenge is the California law itself. So the governor can claim an emergency under uh, the so-called California Emergency Act is specific when you get very eggheaded now, you go to section 8629 of the law, and it says the follows, and I'll read it for you. The governor shall proclaim the termination of emergency at the earliest possible date that conditions warrant. So notice that, that conditions warrant. So it's subjective. He can decide when the emergency has ended on his own. He doesn't have any kind of metric for it. You go to the next sentence of the law, and what does it say? Quote, all of the powers granted uh, the governor by this chapter with respect to a state of emergency shall terminate when the state of emergency has been terminated. In other words, nothing's over until we decide, as I said, an animal house, and then it goes on, uh, or by proclamation of the governor or by concurrent resolution of the legislature declaring it at an end. So this is a long way of saying that either the governor could decide that it's no longer an emergency, it is over, or the legislature has the power to do so. Now, the governor enjoys having this power clearly. That's why he's been doing this for two years. It's allowed him to do a lot of things to his personal and political benefit. Uh, on the political side, for example, he used it to change California voting law to send everybody a mail-in ballot. In theory, that benefits Democrats, as there are more Democrats in California, in California than Republicans. Uh, he also uh, used this to shortcut procedure and hand out a lot of sweetheart contracts to uh, donors and friends as well, something uh, a legislation should be looking at. But it's that tricky part of the law saying concurrent resolution of the legislature. In other words, the legislature could step in tomorrow and say it's over. We're calling it a day. But here's the problem, Lee and Jonathan. They are belong to the same party as Newsom, but also they're kind of beholden the governor because they're about to go and negotiating a budget. They've got bills to sign this fall and to end the to end the emergency without the governor buying into it. In other words, challenging him on this, it would be embarrassing him and he'd probably strike back at them. Uh, by the way, uh, while we're talking about this, kudos to Melissa Melendez. She's a Republican state senator. Uh, she has been a bulldog on this for a couple of years now. This is a classic example of uh, of a problem that goes uh, just untended un un by the legislature 
legislature because they don't want to ruffle the governor's feathers because the system works to her advantage. She's been at it. She's finally forced um, the Democrats to have a hearing in Sacramento on March the 15th. Um, the problem, though, is that just they're not going to dig deep into what the governor's done as emergency powers or probably just gloss it over and move on. But I guess it does show persistence does pay off. But I don't know, Lee. Lee, is, when's an emergency not an emergency? <laughs> well, in... Um... So Newsom renewed the state of emergency in November of last year. Right. And, um, and so what effectively he was saying at that time, which was a time when COVID cases in California had declined by 90%. Mm-hmm. This was before, uh, you know, obviously the Omicron, the Omicron spike. But in November, of 19, uh, November 2021, California COVID cases had been down by 90%. Um, we'd also seen Gavin, you know, sans mask, uh, dining at the dining at the French Laundry, sans mask at the Super Bowl. Um, he, by keeping the state of emergency on in November 21, and now we're now we're approaching two years, two years in which, you know, we have what you might uncharitably call a political despot. Um, he effectively is saying, you know what, I'm going to keep this as long as I want to. No one is saying there is an emergency situation anymore with COVID. Um, if you are, then, you know, you do get to this point of view of, well, then there's always going to be an emergency because we certainly don't see any signs that it's going to be eliminated. Right. So you have the, uh, you know, Bella, uh, I don't know, about a year or so ago, I wrote, I wrote a, uh, a, a, you know, in the name of shameless self-promotion for our column, uh, California on Your Mind, I wrote a piece called uh, The Governor Who Would Be King. And um and he has made a lot of executive orders um, that one might question. Uh, and anyone, anyone, this is a nonpartisan issue, anyone who really values constitutional government representation, not having a one-person rule really should be very, very worried about this. Um, because yeah. I can't imagine that there's a legitimate reason right now that he should not let this go. Um, and I agree with you, Bill, good politics would say he better let it go, because I think this will come back to bite him if he doesn't. So I th- I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the stadium mask, uh, because the photo of him not wearing a mask next to Magic Johnson is just it's just really just the kind of thing that gets under voter skins, uh, if you will. Uh, two points to make on emergencies. First of all, California governors use them a lot. Um, I worked for a governor, Pete Wilson, back in the 1990s. He would use them, but usually in response to a natural disaster like flooding or mudslides or something like that. And with a very short window, um, I'll tell you a funny personal anecdote. When you declare a state of emergency, you know all rules are off, including rules governing the state capitals. So when I was writing his state of the state speeches, I could smoke a cigar inside the capitol because the rule, the no smoking rule is frozen. So life was pretty good during that time. But uh, So they've been used before. Um, but the problem here is um, the vagueness of what an emergency is and the open-endedness of it just to go for a long time. I think in a better world, you really kind of go after the governor's authority here by first of all saying, okay, it's got to be renewed every, let's say, 45 or 60 days. Uh, if you really want to make it difficult, let's have a supermajority vote on it, not just a majority, but a supermajority. So it's genuine vox populi. Um, and again, just make them define what it is exactly the conditions are. Maybe even have force the governor to come down to the legislature and talk about it. But you just can't have this vague law that says the governor says, well, it's an emergency. And, you know, it's I mentioned Animal House. It's the John Belushi line. Where, you know, 
it's over. Nothing's over until we decide. Nothing, nothing's over until <laughs> right. nothing's and over until we until we decide. Yeah. And, and that's and that's um, and that's the problem here. It's just the governor will decide there's no longer an emergency until the governor decides there's not an emergency. But we don't have a definition for what emergency conditions are in California. Now, two years ago, when you know the thing was spiking and people were dying, that but when the governor is at a stadium and people are just kind of throwing away their masks and people want to get on their lives, it's hard to sell the emergency thing. So yeah, again, Lee, I. I think it just makes all the political sense in the world for him to let it go in, in March. Yeah, I, I just, yeah. And, you know, and kudos to Melissa um, Lendez. Um, and when people think about the Republican Party and and the lack of impact that the Republican Party has in California, um, she is she is a rising star. Um, she's very smart. She's very, very logical. She appeals across a wide base of, of voters, and um, she's going to be someone who's going to who's who I who I hope who I hope is going to be continuing in politics because um, I think we yeah. need more people more people like her to call out this behavior. And again, this isn't a, this isn't a partisan issue. This is an issue about how much power one person has. The California Constitution clearly states how much they should have, and right now is is for it's depending on where depending on where you are if you're kevin kiley you're saying newsom has been abusing this for months i think if you're if you're a middle of the road voter then you're going to be thinking yeah yeah we should we should this should be dropped so i suspect uh if uh, if Gavin is smarter than what he showed being at the Super Bowl with that mask on, he will drop it. We'll, we'll see. And a, a final note about Senator Melendez Lee. So she's introduced a bill. It's a SB 448, and it would place an expiration date on gubernatorial emergency orders. It actually has bipartisan support, Lee. It's yet to receive a committee hearing. So welcome to Sacramento. Yep. This has been very interesting and timely analysis, gentlemen. Thank you for your time. My pleasure, Jonathan. Lee. Thanks, Jonathan. Always, always fun to get together with you fellas. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and some balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore O'Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access this latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroides sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.